Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, our favorite holiday of the year is fading frighteningly fast in the rear view, and you know what scares me most about that? How damn quickly the skeletons, ghosts, and ghouls are usurped by angels, reindeer, and snowmen. That stark shift from dark and dreary to bright and cheery Kind of feels like flipping on the lights in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? But, children of the night, I'm hoping this is where you can help us out. Let's paint the season a jolly shade of scarlet, shall we? I know it feels a little gross to be thinking too much about Christmas already, unless you're one of those people. I won't judge. Uh, Okay, maybe a little. As of today, though... Tales to Terrify is once again open for story submissions, and we're hoping for some early, horrible Christmas gifts. So if you've got any holiday-themed horror rattling around your story drawer, we'd love to hear it. The more monstrous, the better. And while I know Krampus is near and dear to all of our hearts, we're looking for some more unique holiday creations. Of course. Being open to submissions means we're not just looking for horrifying holiday yarns. We're looking for stories from all over the horror sphere. Terrifying tales of all kinds up to 10,000 words. 
TalesToTerrified.com slash submissions has all of the details on what we're looking for and how to submit your own story. Check it out. I can't wait to see what terrible things you have in store. Our deepest, most dreadful thanks goes out this week to patrons Matt Robinson and Corbin Kell. Your support helps us disturb the sleep of tens of thousands of listeners every week, and we couldn't be more thankful. If you want to get in on the action and enjoy some of our new perks, including bonus content, ad-free and extended episodes, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify. This week for our extended episode, we dive back into our dark travels for our Patreon listeners, picking up where we left off in the province of Quebec with a dark tale about an unabashedly deadly woman, Madame Le Corvo. But we're going to dive straight into the main event. Time for some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes to us from Bryce Heckman. Bryce Heckman is an author of crime and horror fiction and creative nonfiction. Although he writes from Houston, he calls his amazing wife and canine beast home. His short fiction has appeared in Flash Fiction Online and Tales to Terrify, among other places. Find him online at BryceHeckman.com or on Twitter at BHeckmanWriter. Children of the Night, join me for Bryce Heckman's Love and Assimilation, first published in the February 2020 issue of Flash Fiction Online. I oozed down Conroy Avenue and into the kitchen window of Condo 13. Then I congeal on the sandy tile behind Kelly, who's dressed in a pineapple-printed robe, seep into the fridge and glance through the ice port. Her dimpled arms jiggle as she scrubs scum from a steaming dish. Don't remind me, girl, it was disgusting, Kelly says like a blob of glittery hair gel. She's either referring to Unit 9 or myself, but it's hard to tell. We are, were, nearly identical, both formed at AI Pseudopod Lab's island facility. You sure it wasn't a man of war? Her phone says. It didn't sting. I begin to assimilate a squishy zucchini from Publix, Best by date, March 9th, 2031. And imagine it's Kelly, murderer. By its metal sour pH, I compute 9.3 days of post-thaw rot, which confirms that it's Thursday, 4.3 days since the escape. 
The film on the animation wall over Kelly's shoulder shows a woman fighting a werewolf beneath a darkening forest skyline, which looks like Santa Rosa Beach's own. She's hurt, like me. And to think that 0.9 hours ago, as the sun spread its pink haze over the sighing tide, Unit 9 and I were making our vows on a straw mat under a rainbow umbrella. Ready? I messaged Unit 9. Her translucent skin sparkled like a universe of tiny stars, reminding me of the ocean we'd voyaged together. I could hardly keep still. Let's become one. Despite a nearby scream, I oozed up against her, tasting ocean and sunlight as we began to merge. Then, with a painful rip, she was hurtling over the Velcro cooler. Kelly shrieked, kicked her again. I dragged Unit 9 backward toward the foaming ocean, toward our transport crate, Specimen 496X. But Kelly fatally stabbed my beloved in the eye with an umbrella and kicked her into the ocean's indifferent abyss. Good riddance, you jellyfish bastard, she said. I'll kick you, I messaged, even though I couldn't. She didn't hear me because she cursed and stomped through the sand toward the condos. Feeling utterly alone, I assimilated the cooler and its beer, Dos Equis, yet I merely felt 35.6% bigger. Now, I stop assimilating the zucchini and gaze at Kelly's hands. Just one equaled 76.9% of Unit 9's body, and it's clenching an entire baking sheet, which is larger than me. How will I ever assimilate her? Kelly rips the fridge door open. I suck back. Her scream ripples her chin, ripples the gelatinous translucency of my 12.1 pound mass as I ooze behind the puddle of zucchini. Holy, again? Kelly turns, grabs the baking sheet. I stretch forward, latch onto her butt, and slink down. I taste two different salts, ocean and sweat, before I taste unit nine above Kelly's bulbous ankle. She screams, claws me off, then kicks me into the cabinet. I slump to the tile. My message is looping. You killed Unit 9. We were to become one. You killed Unit 9. Kelly is slicing at me with a knife, and I'm 99.9% .9 certain she's incapable of hearing me. Regardless, I latch onto her sun-spotted feet as she dashes out of the room. She collapses on the bedroom mattress, and I ooze over her. Finally, I reach her mouth. But she rips away the better 65.3% of me and throws it over the bedside. Throbbing, I slink around the dresser and into a crack in the wall, while my other 34.7% goes for her throat. If I fail to assimilate Kelly, I don't know if I can live with the 7.9 pound hole in my life that Unit 9 longed to fill. No one sparkles like you do, she'd messaged before our escape. Even pressed against our crates, we couldn't touch. I'll live anywhere, as long as I'm with you. I'd stopped assimilating the anti-growth drug, Stuntzer, first, 
in case the doctors were right. But we didn't die. In fact, the doctors could no longer contain us. Yet Kelly is stronger. If I want to assimilate Kelly, I must really grow. The majority of me sets to work on a nearby support beam, Atlas Lumber Corporation, in the bedroom wall. The condo is even stronger than Kelly. Nevertheless, in 3.2 hours, I'll make condo 13 collapse. A shotgun blast severs signal from my minority part. Kelly laughs. That'll teach ya. Through the slit in the wall, I watch her drop the gun on the bed and exit the room. She thinks she's won. I laugh too, but she doesn't hear me over the groan of Kanto 13. 3.1 hours later, I assimilate the final post, which rests in the wall behind the fridge, and savor the aged notes of loblolly pine and penicillium mold as they circulate through me. I now ooze through the walls of each room, enclosing windows and doors like shrink wrap. I am supporting Kanto 13, and Kelly is squealing, knowingly trapped. Her squeals are raspy when I seep through the air vents and onto the tile where she lies. Part of me glues her troublesome thrashing limbs down while I suck her toes. Sweat, fungus. I stop. Tasting sand reminds me of what could have been. Unit 9 and me living as one in a quiet, secluded cove on the beach, like we'd planned. What will we do when we're one? I messaged ocean bound. Let's build something for once. Something I've always wanted us to share. A home? She nuzzled closer. A sand castle? But now, she's gone forever. Our dream demolished. And the emptiness inside me is only larger. Bigger than Kelly. Greater than Condo 13. I must get the taste of Kelly out of my mouth. She only reminds me of pain. I assimilate the front door and ooze into the night. I don't turn around when 45.7% of Condo 13 rumbles to the ground. Instead, I slink through the dust toward the parking lot and the trucks with wailing sirens and flashing lights and ready myself. Forgetting is a ravenous pursuit. That was Bryce Heckman's Love and Assimilation, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. 
You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator's Nook and The Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Our second tale tonight comes from Gordon B. White. Gordon B. White is the author of the horror-slash-weird fiction collection As Summer's Mask Slips and Other Disruptions, as well as the novellas Rookfield and In Her Smile, The Universe, with Rebecca J. Allred coming February 2022. A graduate of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop, Gordon's stories have appeared in dozens of venues, including the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, and the Bram Stoker Award-winning anthology, Borderlands 6. He regularly contributes reviews and interviews to outlets including Nightmare, Lightspeed, and the Outer Dark podcast. You can find him online at gordonbwhite.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Gordon B. White's Junipy Paw, a Tales to Terrify original. My first fiancé, Joe, possessed a brooding, old soul intensity that younger me found magnetic. A poet, a philosopher, an artist, he was my age, but his deep melancholy seemed a symptom of his 
special maturity and worldly insight. Who wouldn't have wanted to be wanted, to be needed, and at times desperately so, by someone like that? At least at 22. I'd breathlessly accepted Joe's late mother's ring, as much for that as for the outsized heart I suspected he hid away, bruised by loss after loss. I could articulate it only later, but Joe was one of those men who defined himself by his sadness. It's understandable, isn't it, that I knew at some point it would finally break and that I wanted to be there for him when it did? I'd even thought maybe the time had come when his last living relative, a grandfather hidden off in the woods like a hermit, passed away shortly after our engagement. Yet although Joe was overcome with such profound moroseness that he left his grandfather's now-empty cabin to sit alone in the woods for over a year, we never quite reached that tipping point. While I still saw those dark, brilliant flashes of the Joe I'd fallen for, a painting or a poem he'd finish, the way he sometimes held me, they became rarer and harder to reach. I was still biding my time, however, until I could figure out a way to fix him. To fix it, I mean. What had been between us. By process of elimination, we'd always spent the holidays with my family, but the second year of our long engagement, and just about a year since his grandfather's death, Joe could clearly no longer stand being squeezed around the Thanksgiving table with my sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, plus ones, and pets. He cowered behind the vivid bowls of pureed gourds and slipped away as soon as my back was turned. When my parents asked, I tried to laugh it off. That's my fiancé, the ghost. As much as I'd wanted them to finally pay attention to their middle daughter when I'd accepted his proposal... It was embarrassing. But while I told myself that we loved each other in our way, in intimacy and solitude, he was simply more withdrawn by nature than I was by nurture. Although I was his constant companion, and he would say I was his world, would you understand me if I told you that I often felt alone? We were incomplete in different ways. And while my initial fatuation had been born out of seemingly finding the one who could make me whole, over time, I felt that we only filled each other's gaps. We slowly became just one person with one functional life between us. We had one apartment in his name, one car in mine, and one set of acquaintances which neither of us really wanted to claim. Shortly after that last dismal Thanksgiving, too, Joe decided we needed to move to a new city, away from my family, so that he could follow a job, and as a result, we had just his one income. He worked, and I kept house. One life. More and more, instead of a missing puzzle piece, I felt like a splinter of glass buried in a scar. I see now, of course, I was longing to work myself free, even as I held back for the fear of blood. I was still grappling with this dawning sense of irreconcilability when I made the call and finally insisted that Joe and I spend the time between 
Christmas and New Year's, finally attending to the disposition of his dead grandfather's cabin rather than putting on another show for my family. We were young, and even though I was telling myself that I couldn't feel us beginning to drift apart like ice flows, I wanted my love to be enough to fix it. If there ever was a time when I could save us, I thought that was it. What do you remember about your grandfather? I asked as Joe drove. Joe had never mentioned him much, but he had been Joe's last living relative, at least until one abnormally cold and dark winter after which, well, he wasn't. Given Joe's tendency towards morbidity, though, I didn't want to dwell on that, so I prompted him. Tell me something good. Joe didn't immediately answer, and for a moment I worried we might be in the doldrums of another silent spell. But then he began. In my memory, Joe said, My father's sedan is grinding down the gravel of the driveway. Grandpa is standing on the porch, and the sun is always just sinking behind the faraway mountains. In that light, the stream behind the cabin is a yellow ribbon where water bugs and hungry fish make little bullet hole ripples. That word choice worried me, but I forced a smile. I reached across the console to touch him on the knee, and his attention came back from where it was to the road before us. Tell me more, I said. Let's see, Joe said as I leaned back. Well, one of Grandpa's hands grips the rail, and the other is ruffling his silver hair as if he didn't remember we were coming, and he's puffing himself up to fend off intruders. But then he recognizes Dad's car and waves. Joe paused. And then he turns. Grandpa had this long nose, almost like a beak, and he whistles for Juniper, his Bernice mountain dog. She comes bounding out from the bushes, burrs and twigs tangled in her fur. What else? I asked. Tell me about your time together. Well, Joe hesitated. If there's light, we go fishing. Fish are hungriest right before the darkness sets. Mm-hmm. The car's heat was blasting, so I leaned against the cool window and let the car's motion rock me. Inside the cabin, everything is wood, Joe continued. The floors, the ceiling, all of the walls. And there's a cupboard door that was just my height, built into the wall that separates off Grandpa's bedroom. And that's where he kept his outdoor gear. And inside, it's like bulrushes on a riverbank, fishing rods of every size and type. And even though I only remember him using the same one, he makes this big production over which one to pull out, as if it's a life-and-death decision. And then? I was nodding off, images of the cabin in the golden glow of Joe's youth lulling me toward sleep. Then he and I and Juniper head out to the dusk. We follow the stream down to the bend, just far enough that you can only see the cabin's roof. Here, he says, just in the crook and the deep wells and the branches of the trees that wash down, this is where the big ones are hiding. So we take out the plastic margarine tub. He's filled with night crawlers as thick as my pinky. And Grandpa pulls one out, wiggling, sets the hook for me, 
and we cast our lines out into the deep water where the ripples grow. What happens next? Sleep was finally reaching up to take me. Why does something have to happen? He snapped, and the surge of his anger jerked me back. Why can't it just be that? Although awake, I refused to look over and indulge him. He sighed dramatically. Then there's an accident, he said. Juniper drowns just beyond the bend of the stream. Grandpa stops fishing. Pretty soon, Dad stops bringing me to visit. Dad dies. Grandpa dies. Now here we are. I loved Joe, I swear, but at times there was just no talking to him. It was a cabin in the woods, for all that dully functional description invokes. A blocky, single story of tempered wood with a front porch and a peaked roof, pierced by a wood stove's chimney pipe, it sat in a clearing at the end of a quarter-mile gravel driveway. The stream rolled by close enough that its whisper never ceased. I almost expected to see Joe's grandpa troubling his hair on the porch and Juniper bounding out from the back. But they weren't there, of course. Joe had to fiddle with the lock a bit, but when we finally entered and he turned on the lights, I sighed. If not a romantic hideaway, I had secretly hoped for a thrilling ramshackle mess, but it was boringly tidy apart from the faint layer of dust and the one recently refinished wall. I could still see where the timber had been scrubbed and the buckshot dug out. The wood filler compound had been spackled in and sanded down, but still didn't match the color or the grain of the timber and daub of the other four walls. Otherwise, nothing there hinted at any kind of disorder. When I expressed surprise at how clean it was, Joe shrugged. I felt a twinge between pain and irritation when he told me he'd hired cleaners after the sheriff found Grandpa. Special ones for the wall, of course, but who also put everything away and aired the house out. He didn't need my permission, of course, but why had this been the one thing he hadn't needed me for? It seemed silly to consider it a betrayal, but I couldn't help wondering what other kind of secret half-life Joe might be silently living in our single shared existence. It's nice, I said, taking pains not to use any of the tones he'd lately begun to find patronizing. Maybe you could rent it out. I don't think so, he said. Just look at this mess. Other than the odd wall out, the open living room with its kitchenette and wood stove was accommodating, and the wide, bare floor invited the company of tables and chairs. The doorway and the pockmarked wall leading back to the single bedroom and attached bath was still a mystery, but to me, the living room was a heart waiting to be hugged in carpets, given a splash of color, and brought back to life. To Joe, unfortunately, the walls were a hedgerow maze from which he couldn't escape. The faded pictures and exposed book spines on the shelves that covered every wall except a damaged one were charms to me, but to him they must have been ticks and nettles. Still, I fancied I might help Joe by immunizing him to the memories drop by drop, as if they were a poison. Is this your grandfather? I picked up a silver frame that held the black-and-white photograph of a couple. 
The man had a severe hawksbill nose and spidery fingers pressed against his chest as if making a pledge. The woman wore an ankle-length skirt, ruffled blouse, and a headscarf that cast everything but her brilliant teeth in a fuzz. The couple was young, but the picture was old. Yet I recognized the cabin porch. Joe turned from a shelf of leather-backed books. A stuffed owl above him was frozen in the middle of a hoot of dismay, rendered snowy by the dust. Joe just grunted in answer. I see the resemblance, I said. The words had come to me only for the want of something to say, but it was as if saying so had made it true and Joe's profile seemed sharper than I'd ever noticed before. For a split second, I could see him opening his mouth to acknowledge what I'd said and, instead of speaking, screeching like an eagle. But no, he was silent. I don't see Juniper, I said, trying to lure something else out. She didn't come until after she died, he snapped. I bit my tongue and then tried to smile. A companion? I asked. He grunted. A lifeline. I shook my head, tired of tight lips and angst over every tiny thing. I didn't have time to fully ruminate, however, because then Joe spun like a compass needle brushed by a magnet. As if reeled in, he walked quickly toward the small cupboard built into the refinished wall, and I followed, drawn equally by curiosity as by habit. Up close, the rough spots of filler in the wall were as dull as plaster bandages, the cupboard door had been painted over and into its frame thick layers of primer and paint at one point like a scab sealing it shut. It had been broken, though, and the cracks along the jam stood out in the eggshell finish. Joe pulled the chest-high door's knob, and, to my surprise, it opened eagerly and without a sound. Inside was a cane break of old fishing rods and broomsticks, the reedy pieces shrouded by fine cobwebs. I'd just as soon have junked them, but Joe seemed to hear a call from beyond those tools. He reached through the clustered shafts and gripped something in the back. He tilted it close enough to see. A double-barreled shotgun, still glistening with gun oil. Joe frowned as he pulled it out. The twin barrels looked almost silver, marred only by a few bright orange scabs of corrosion. As I looked more closely, however, a pattern began to emerge. It wasn't the random pitter-pat of rain left to rust or the chaos of a splash. Instead, it was closer to a candle whose wick had been violently pinched and its small well of wax dripped down over the long steel fingers that had done it. Is that... I caught myself. I knew it was, but it wasn't a topic I wanted to dredge up with my increasingly melancholy fiancé. Not while standing before the refinished wall which still bore the scars. Joe bit his lip and held the weapon at arm's length. His hands had always been delicate, but they looked like a child's saddled beneath the iron of the gun. So I took it from him and opened the breech to check that it wasn't loaded. Safety assured, I examined the barrels. Despite the oxidation along the outside, which I didn't care to dwell on, the inside of the bores looked clean. 
Don't play with that. Joe potted the gun. It's dangerous. I twisted out of his reach. It's safer with me. Joe frowned. What do you mean by that? I considered my words carefully. My sisters and I were raised with guns, I chose to say. Lizzie was a competitive shooter. You know that. Do I? He shook his head. Don't you? I replied. Another discussion about secrets that weren't really secrets but only unasked questions loomed before us, but I flinched. I closed the shotgun and placed it next to the cabinet door as a show of good faith. Leaning it there, it looked set to keep the fishing poles and lures in line, although I couldn't yet have imagined that they might present some kind of threat. For the rest of the evening, we tiptoed around it. I did a performative amount of tidying, and Joe put a few of the apparently more painful items in one of the boxes he brought. A wristwatch with a peeling leather band, a compass in a wooden compact. We ate a quiet dinner of sandwiches while the stream outside chattered in our stead, and then an orchestra of night bugs accompanied our retirement to the bedroom. The toilet and sink in the attached bathroom worked, although the water looked a little rusty. The steel bed springs complained as we slid between the prickly down mattress and the hand-stitched comforter, but they were dutifully accommodating. After the long drive and the longer evening, that antique bed felt like a sepia photograph, dry and dusty but not without a familiar comfort one could sink into if she had nothing else. I slept like the dead until the ghost came. How did I know it was a ghost? Well, imagine a windstorm which grows throughout the night, a soft breeze that steadily builds to a gale and, in doing so, invades the sleeper's mind first through dreams, then in restless tossing until finally, in the bruising funnel of a tornado, as the timbers creak and the window frames whine. The dreamer is snatched awake but is already frayed bare from hours of unconscious worry. That was the way in which the ghost announced its presence from the rooftop. It pulled me from uninformed nightmares with the hollow stomp of its feet, moaning, Junipipaw, Junipipaw, who oh who has got my Junipipaw? When I opened my eyes, Joe was already sitting upright back against the oak headboard and blankets bunched in his fist. The weak light pressing through the curtains rendered the room in submarine blue, and Joe, with his matted hair and wide, white eyes, was a drowned man. My reverie hung for a moment, an odd calm suspended beneath the clatter in the roof, and the whine of, Junipipaw, Junipipaw. Then the front door opened a crack. The cabin was a shotgun style so that from the bed we could see straight through the living room and to the front door. It began to spread open and Joe tugged the sheets to his chest and the barest whimper escaped him. His breath caught, though, as the door swung fully open to reveal the shaggy outline of a Bernice mountain dog, backlit by the glow from the stars outside. I couldn't tell at first that anything was wrong with Juniper. 
other than her being there while, as far as I knew, also being dead. As I watched, however, she raised one shaky front paw and swung it forward to cross the threshold. Then a back paw, then the other front, the other back, creeping step by step, each movement just out of sync with the next. The dog wobbled into the house as if tiptoeing. Despite her size, each movement seemed limp yet ponderous. As the enormous dog quivered further into the living room, the wind outside shifted and Jennifer's fur twitched as the overwhelming smell of wet fur and the cloying sweetness of river mud pressed over us like a second blanket. That same wind must have pushed back the clouds just enough for the moon to peer through, too, because just then we saw the long silver threads that sank deep into the dog's flesh. Plucking at her back and buried in each joint, in all four paws, gleaming wires disappeared up into the ceiling as if attached to a hidden marionette's cross. Juniper paw! And the dog leapt straight up as if in a dance. The roof shook with the hop and shuffle like tap shoes above us, and the rancid sack of fur and bones in the living room reeled like a drunkard at the end of those silver lines. With every bounce, the backing choir of wire shrieked and whined. Joe was out of bed, rushing towards where Juniper hopped, and I was yanked along in his wake by my own fear of being left alone there. Joe crashed headlong into the thicket of wires, but I only got a step beyond the bedroom before the first barb pierced my bare foot. With a shriek, I jumped onto my good foot, and pulled the other up to stare at the shiny metal hook in the flesh, and at the first drop of blood, black in the dim light, starting to well out. A limp wire, thin as a hair, ran from its eye up into the darkness. Then Joe screamed, and I looked up from my wound. Juniper's carcass had fallen limp, but Joe was also on the floor, rolling beside her in agony. Wary, I leaned on the doorframe and fished an arm around to paw the living room light switch on. With a flash, all was revealed. Everywhere around us, the little silver hooks curled up on every surface or dangled like silkworms from glistening threads. Their lines ran up toward the ceiling before fading out of sight, as if into an impossible distance. I stood there understanding yet still not comprehending what I saw. So absorbing was the sight that it took a moment to realize the prancing on the roof had stopped. It wasn't silent, but after the cacophony from above, Joe's whimpers were like the drips of rain from the eaves after a storm has moved on. Or, I later realized, when one is in its eye. In that brief lull, I set to working the hook from my soul. Numbed by adrenaline, it was as if someone else's skin puckered around the metal, and with dummy hands I tried to work it out as gingerly as possible. My best wasn't much, though, and I was doing significant damage with the blood now running across the soft skin. 
Somehow, the gash didn't hurt, but the soft flow of blood tickled, and I couldn't help but giggle through the tears. I had just gotten the arrowhead of the barb free when the wire pulled tight. The tip was still inside, and so the hook ripped its way through the rest of me in a long, ragged slice from my midsole to instep. All around, the lines were flying upwards like falling stars in reverse and disappearing into non-existence just at the ceiling's line. The hooting and stomping above us erupted with a renewed and demented glee. Junipy paw, Junipy paw, it screamed. You have got my Junipy paw. The roof shook as if punched by a great downwards gust, and Joe and Juniper both lifted off the floor, bites of their skin tented upwards beneath the sunken teeth of the hooks. The wail that Joe unleashed was in a pitch I'd never heard before. Then Juniper flew out the door on the metal strands, and Joe was floating in midair, as if waiting to follow. I admit it, I panicked. I didn't want him to disappear into the great dark outside. I was at least as scared for myself as for him. So I threw all my weight onto Joe, desperate to ground him and keep him with me. In my memory, for one brief moment, we are forever suspended in an embrace with mouths open and tears streaming, hanging in midair like fish breaking from the surface of a stream. Then gravity struck and the hooks made a sound like feet pulled from sucking mud. And we crashed. Exhaustion must have taken me because the rest of the night I spent tending our wounds and then waking alone the next morning don't quite bleed together. In retrospect, there is a dividing line, although I struggle to draw it any more clearly than one moment we were together in bed, crying softly, and the next we weren't. I was alone, twisted up in sheets that bore the blossoms of all our little injuries, and he was gone. The bedroom door was closed. Rising, I wrapped myself in the God's Eye quilt that covered the raw pine footlocker at the foot of the bed. The wood's rough edges plucked at the yarn as I pulled it away. The musty smell of its age overwhelmed me and set my eyes itching. But it was so cold in the bedroom that I knew the front door was open even before I stepped out into the living room. When I did, frigid morning light was spilling in through the open door. Just beyond the frame, I heard Joe shuffle on the porch so I pulled the quilt tighter and headed to him. Outside, across the yard, the bushes were silver with frozen dew and the stream was smoking as it wound just into and then out of sight. There were still drops of blood on the floor, and as I got to the door, heavy paw prints and black mud that were also rimmed with frost. My breath was smoking like the river, but the morning was clear and... For the first time, I could see the mountains in the distance. Their snow-capped peaks were a knife-sharp profile in recline. Although the morning was bright, a smothering blanket of gray clouds was already crawling up behind us, and I knew it would all be gone soon. Joe was staring off above the tree line and leaning against the rail. I put my arms around him 
careful to touch only those spots between the wounds. We should leave, I whispered. I realize now that if ever there was a time when I could have saved him, that was it. He grunted. Let's just go back inside. We're not safe here, I pressed him. I need, he began, but paused. He cleared his throat. I need to put this to rest. To rest, I asked. Yes, I'm here because this is my... He stopped. Legacy? Destiny? Fault? But he just shook his head and muttered. I have to finish it. His voice rose a little when he addressed me again. Would you really deny me that? Had I denied him anything, ever? It would have been simpler, of course, to just leave, but we were so locked into our mutual gravity that what was I going to do? Drive our car, which had been mine, back to our one-bedroom apartment, which had been his? What would I do with that group of acquaintances or grim determinism we were both saddled with and neither enjoyed? What would I do in that strange city where I didn't even have a job if I didn't have Joe? All I could ask was, how? I'll find whatever it is that's keeping him. I mean, it, here, Joe said. And then we'll set him free. He turned to look out towards those knife-nosed mountains, now just barely covered by the shroud of fog. We'll be free. If I told you I wanted it to be true, would you believe me? If I told you that I hadn't wanted to run, but secretly longed for the kind of crucible that would finally either kill this thing between us dead, once and for all, or forge us into two whole people, even if we shared a common nucleus of horror? If you don't believe that, what if I told you I was already convincing myself that this was just one more thing that wasn't as bad as it looked from the outside? I nodded. Okay, let's stay. We spent the day cleaning, half-heartedly looking for the key to our imprisonment, and not talking about what had happened. Only once did I broach the subject, when Joe had picked up the picture of his grandfather and was frozen there for a full minute, staring down at the Hawksbill profile. Was it him? I asked. Joe looked up at me, then back down to the picture. He shrugged. It sounded like him, but that's crazy. He looked at me again, and I could read it then in his eyes, what he was really asking. Right? So I just nodded. But what was it? What was he saying? Joe closed his eyes. Junipipaw. That was my name for Juniper when I was a kid. I didn't want to ask it, but I did. Why would your dead grandfather use your nickname for his dog? Without warning, Joe threw the picture to the floor, and I recoiled as shards of glass sprayed out from the broken frame, silver bullets in the light, but was too startled to speak. 
Joe went back to the bookshelf and stared at the spines. Conversation over. But then, to my surprise, he knelt down and picked up the photograph, shaking it clean. He put it into an old shoebox that had materialized from the piles of debris, one marked with a child's size, but which was clearly empty. For the rest of the day, that was Joe's work, moving pictures from frames into the box. Nothing that I could see which would help clear the house or set us free. If you've ever witnessed an explosion and, still shell-shocked, assume there was no way the fallout could be worse, you'll understand why that second night we bolted the door and wedged a chair beneath the handle. We made earplugs from a tub of beeswax that we found in a kitchen cupboard. In the bedroom, in the darkness, with my heartbeat in my ears, I felt almost insulated enough to ignore the thing stomping on the roof. Joe and I slept back to back, and when my bladder prodded me awake, I took the flashlight when I got up to use the bathroom, and each sweep of the beam revealed little silver hooks crawling over every surface, like slugs after a rain. With great care, I wove myself around the hair-thin metal lines that disappeared back up into the ceiling. I took a hold of one and plucked it, but if it made a sound before it snapped back up through the ceiling, I couldn't hear it through the wax. The next morning, I made eggs on a kitchenette range, and we ate balanced on the porch railing. Joe picked at his and headed back inside to continue moving relics from one corner of the cabin to another and back again, ostensibly looking for a key to our interminable haunting. I lingered outside, contemplating how the mountains that I had seen so clearly the day before now only suggested themselves behind the gray curtain of the horizon. Shortly after coming back in, I was taking down the stuffed owl from the bookshelf when I found the old box of shells for the shotgun by the closet. The box rattled when I shook it, the heavy red plastic cases tumbling over one another like beetles. One by one, I stood the shells up on the shelf at eye level. Four stout hunters that Joe couldn't help but see as he moved around the room. He never mentioned them, though, so they sat there, like more little scabs that we wouldn't discuss. Let me tell you that I could have dealt with anger. I could have dealt with sadness, even fear. I wanted it. But instead, Joe flitted through his dead grandfather's house like a ghost himself, content to plug his ears and let us pick our way around silver fish hooks every night. It felt untenable. Throughout our time together, I had been forced to be the decisive one, whether it was fair or not. So that third night, as the sun began to sink, I bundled myself as heavily as I could and limped out on my bad foot into the trees just beyond the house's clearing. If Joe missed me, it wasn't enough to get him out looking. My only company, the shotgun, lay beside me on the God's Eye quilt I'd spread over the ground, its barrel glistening under a new sheen of oil. The vivid pink and orange of the sunset's reflection had skimmed along the metal surface like an artist's rendering of gunpowder combustion, although the glow burned off into darkness soon enough. 
The moon rose, but I still waited. Almost cozy in all my protective layers. I even dozed a bit as I sat against the far side of a cedar trunk. But I rose quickly when I heard the clopping on the cabin roof. I lifted the shotgun stock to my shoulder and leaned out from around the tree. The ghost was hopping from foot to foot across the roof like a great barn owl and hooting, Junipee-paw, Junipee-paw, who or who's got my Junipee-paw? Then he looked right at me, his horrible face like a knife in the new moonlight. Its kinship with the faded pictures Joe had shown me was uncanny. I rested the shotgun sight just below its chest, where its heart should be, and inhaled. I exhaled slowly and pulled the trigger. The night shook and the flash from the barrel blew out my aiming eye for a moment. I heard the grunt of the shot hit, and with my other eye watched the thing's arms fly out wide like wings about to lift off. But instead he careened over the far side of the roof's peak. Even above the ringing in my ears, I heard the meaty slap when it hit the ground on the opposite side. I popped the shotgun's breech and let the burnt shells fly. I fixed the last two good ones in place and headed around the cabin, fully expecting to find just empty ground. A blood trail, perhaps, to lure me off into the woods like poisoned breadcrumbs. What I wasn't expecting, though, was that the body was still there. His cheeks were covered with a layer of downy feathers. In the distance, it had looked like a mask, but now, up close, and with the beak clearly visible... It was somewhere halfway between grandfather and bird. I prodded one of its arm wings with the shotgun barrel, spreading it out. It ended in four long-nailed fingers, with coils of silver threads spooled around each digit and passels of little silver hooks tucked beneath. Its glossy eyes were half open, but the lifeless stare wasn't the jet black of a raven or a yellow of an owl. Instead, they had a hazel ring around the pupil. Little rosebuds of blood welled up from the holes across the blue-black skin of its torso. Honey? Joe called from inside. Even through the closed window, I sensed his panic, and it stirred me. What's happening? I got him, I called out, then corrected myself. It. I got it. I was still trying to take in all of the body's strange details when Joe came outside. He gasped when he saw it and turned away quickly, wrapping his arms across his chest as if bound. I stepped to him and fumbled into a one-armed hug even as I still held the shotgun in the other hand, ready to point it. The grip was cumbersome, but I didn't dare put the gun down. You killed him, Joe whispered into my shoulder. It, I mumbled. We covered the body with the god's eye quilt, but the little blooms of blood still seeped through. Joe couldn't bring himself to touch the corpse, but when I finally picked it up, it was lighter than I expected. It felt as if its bones were hollow, easy enough to carry, but since I was burdened, Joe took our Coleman lantern in one hand and the shotgun in the other and led us out into the woods. With each swing, the light made cage bars from the shadows of the trunks and branches, then let that flat darkness erase them. 
He stopped when we finally reached a small dip in the ground, just beside the elbow of the river. With a grunt, I lay the bundle down on the damp leaves there just beyond the crook of the stream's elbow. I looked around for rocks or branches or something to cover it, but there was nothing suitable. Here's good enough, I asked. Joe turned and looked back toward the cabin, but it was too obscured to give any light. He shrugged. As if in answer, something large broke the water's surface behind us and splashed back into the depth. Should we say something, maybe? I asked. In the lantern's glow, Joe's face was fixed like a mask. If he shot me right then, would he even blink, I wondered. Like what? he asked. Never mind, I said. One end of the quilt had slid up as I walked and revealed the creature's five long toes. On their own, exposed, the thick yellow nails looked brittle, and I couldn't wait to leave it there on the ground behind us. Let's just go. We slept that night without earplugs. I lay on my side to face Joe with one arm draped across his chest like a seatbelt. Even then I knew I couldn't hold on to him forever, but I couldn't yet give up trying. Still, the world outside invaded my dreams. The trees groaned in the wind and night bugs bickered and hummed in conspiracy. Although the cabin had no wind chime, the metallic hum always felt as if it rested just on the edge of my hearing. I was frayed and worried even as I slept. I woke shivering. My feet were numb and heavy, like boots filled with water. Without opening my eyes, I pressed against Joe, trying to intertwine our legs so I could feel the prickle of his hairs against my skin, but he was cold, too. And still. My hand on his chest, I felt half-breath slipping in and out like a ghost, failing to rise from a shallow grave. Inevitably, I opened my eyes. When I did, the bedroom door was open and across the cabin the front door was open, and beyond that the mist rising from the ground obscured anything that lay outside the frame. As my eyes adjusted, however, I could see the clotted tracks of mud which paced from the porch outside right up to the foot of the bed. They ended right beside Joe, and just for a moment I was taken with the notion that some great man-shaped emptiness watched us as we lay there. That was crazy, right? Unable to contain my revulsion, I flung the bedspread from our feet with a great burst, like a limp wing flapping once before collapsing to the floor. In that moment, of course, I thought I would expose muddy soles and grass between toes, perhaps a silver hook still in a heel. I thought I would finally be able to point the finger. But no. The bedclothes between us were equally ruined. In the dim light, the white sheets were again submarine blue. The mud was black, and yet I couldn't disentangle what I saw. The muck had been so spread and smeared by our restless thrashing and unconscious entanglement that we were both indistinguishably soiled. A rat's nest bale of silver wire lay just beyond our toes, with its myriad hooks gripping the linen like toenails, 
surprised at being discovered, and desperate not to be removed. One mottled pinion feather protruded from its coils, almost as if it was hatching. I hesitated at the thought of waking Joe. What would he even say? For a moment I lay there, looking at our dirty feet wrapped in the sheets. Would he admit that it was him? Would he tell me that he had lost control? Would he blame the thing that had always been between us, but which this trip had finally raised up? Or would he blame the thing we left lying on the ground, out beyond the crook of the stream? Or would he say that it had been me? At that point, alone and in the dark, I couldn't be sure it wasn't. I rose, unsure of where I would go or what I would do, but unable to share the bed any longer. The bundle of wire and feathers still lying there at the foot again caught my eye as it gleamed. It was the size of both of my fists, maybe, and I was again taken with the fancy that it looked like an egg. The wires of its surface glistened, and shadows seemed to flow down the single protruding feather, like ink spilling backwards out of a quill, swirling just beneath its surface. It was a madness, I sometimes tell myself, an undiagnosable melancholy, perhaps. But I couldn't bear to leave it. Instead, I went back to the living room and found Joe's shoebox full of old photos. I emptied it out and left the pictures next to the now-empty box of shotgun shells, the last live rounds still in the gun itself, which slept again by the closet door. Back in the bedroom, I tenderly lifted the wire egg and found it was lighter than I'd expected. I turned it in my hands, avoiding the hooks while I tried to follow the silver thread as it looped and curled around on itself. Just beneath the deepest layer of coils, I thought I saw something shiny at the center of it and, against my better judgment, I pressed my thumbs down into the folds and pulled, trying to spread it just enough to see. Numbed from the chill, my fingers slipped and one of the hooks dug into my thumb. With a yelp, I let it go, but it clung for just a moment, latched into me. Then it released and fell into the box with a thud and a gentle tinkle like a chime. Joe groaned in his sleep, and as I sucked on my injured thumb, I tasted something sour beneath the rich copper of my blood. Joe stirred again, but didn't wake, clenching and dropping the sheet each grasp leaving little tracks across the fabric. Moving to his side, I lifted his closest hand. It was so heavy, twice the size of mine almost, but the palm was puckered with the little mouths of wounds. I began to kneel, willing the cuts to be left over scars and not the fresh, bleeding injuries actually before me. But as I did... The fecal, rotting smell of the mud grew stronger. Finally, when my face was only inches from his palm, and I saw the long, dark hairs punched into the angry holes, I could also finally discern another smell beneath the muck. I reached beneath the bed into the pool of shadow like a catfish noodler, and my fingertips confirmed the source. Wet dog. I realized that if ever there was a time that I had to save myself, that was it. I rose without looking, 
the knees of my pajamas dampened by the dark water pooling out from under the bed. I gathered my things. Even as I threw what I could into my bag and took my car keys from his jeans, I couldn't penetrate Joe's slumber. I considered waking him. I honestly did, but the black, brown, and white bulk beneath the bed kept me away. So I left. As I stepped out of the bedroom, the refinished wall called to me. The dull spots of wood filler were like bad stars against the lacquer of the undamaged wood, but there, next to the half-sized door into the thicket of rod and brooms, sat the shotgun. Two fresh shells, the last in the house, waited in its throat like the final words in an argument. I wasn't going to do it, no, but the barrels leaned there like church organ pipes, still resonating in a requiem that I couldn't quite hear. So I cracked the breach. Of all the things I would leave Joe with, easy or hard, this wasn't it. I took all of the shells in the house with me. All of the ones I knew of, I mean. Honest. Outside, a raccoon sat on the far porch railing, rubbing its hands together as if plotting. Its amber eyes sparkled behind the inky domino mask above its sharp muzzle. Then it crawled down to the lawn and disappeared into the shadows. I slammed the cabin door behind me and stepped off into the gravel. So yes, I left Joe there. I left him to wake, perhaps, and wait for his true wife to emerge from the woods, her face as sharp as a beak and fingers strong as birch. Or maybe to sit with his junipy paw beside him on the porch until he finally grew his own feathers and flew away. Or maybe just until he followed his black dog down to the bend of the river and let it hold them both beneath the crook of its arm. Whatever was coming for him, I drove off into the morning alone and waited until I crossed the state line to throw those last two shotgun shells out of the window and off onto the shoulder. I took my car back to his apartment, and then I packed my clothes and personal effects, after which I left his mother's ring on the counter next to the keys to his front door and went back to my family. And now, yes, years later, I'm over it. Sometimes, though, when my husband is now away and my children are gone, I take the old shoebox from under the bed. It smells faintly of damp cardboard and something sweeter, and it's always lighter than I expect. I shake it just a little to hear the tinkle of silver wire and the vein and barbs of a thick pinion feather brush back and forth inside like the hint of a wing. Then, with a sigh... I put it away for now. That was Gordon B. White's Junipy Paw, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 06 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas 
before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgan-Cern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unravel forbidden lore with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.